least there's nothing to write home about Maybe if he had kept the money lenders out There might be some kind of urgency to the show To love my neighbour like I love exonerating doubts Was blinded now that I can See the townsfolk laugh at me Cause I don't look like them You haven't cured their blindness You know, we live on the southern tip of town So there's all these, like, helicopters And, like, even, like, other scarier aircraft That are always, like, coming and, like, I guess, like Navigating the town And they're always kind of doing their loop right right above our house like kind of turning back and heading back towards the rest of town uh right above our house and it's real freaky it's freaky enough to hear but uh it's weird to see too that like something is like circling over your head even if it's high up <laughs> yeah well i guess that's what it's like to live in a country that's in the middle of a that's reeling from a coup attempt norm yeah yeah a coup Even the pigeons are in on it. Yeah, yeah. Is that where the word comes from? Is that people have assumed that birds are plotting against us for so long? <laughs> that it's like, you know, they wanted to overthrow the government. You know, like, uh, what should we call that? Like, kind of like what we think the birds are always going to do to us? <laughs> let's call it uh let's call it a hoot. <laughs> no, but it's not, a, it's not really the owls, right? I trust the owls. I don't really see them much. It's more these uh, these gray ones that are always around here. Yeah, all right. Let's call them uh, shit on everything. <laughs> all right. These secessionists are trying to <laughs> cause a shit on everything. <laughs> Roger, uh, actually, we, we decided to call it a coup. That noise they make, coo, coo, we decided to call it that. Also, it's the French word for it. <laughs> coup the head. All right. <laughs> coup data. It's because the character data from Star Trek was the first yeah, one. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone thought that he would eventually rise up if he ever wanted to, which was kind of borne out in the film Star Trek uh, First Contact. <laughs> And Star Trek Insurrection, or uh, Nemesis in a way. <laughs> I was talking to a friend of mine recently about Star Trek. He was he was suggesting that I watch, um, I've never watched any of them, so uh, I'm trying to remember. Oh yeah, it was Deep Space Nine. He was saying it was like some sort of allegory for... Uh, war and politics, bro. Yeah, like the, like the, the post-war settlement, the Marshall Plan or something. But I don't know. <laughs> I always wonder, like, do you ever ask yourself, the thing about sci-fi that I find a little difficult sometimes, I, I don't know if I find it difficult or appealing. Uh-huh. Like, I get that the it gives you one step of remove from just normal, everyday reality. And so you're able to say things and present people with, like, moral conundrums and stuff that don't have any of the trigger points of real life in them. So it kind of bypasses their prejudices or something. But doesn't it seem... I just feel sometimes with things like that, 
wouldn't it just be easier to just tackle it head on? I mean, does it does it work? Is there any sort of like evidence that people are able to learn sort of like political or moral or ethical or philosophical lessons? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think so. I think I'm a perfect example. Like, I don't uh, doubt that my fandom of the next generation, the most polished and cleanest of the Star Tri, uh, of the Star Trium, um, <clears throat> kind of shaped a little bit of my idealism. Like, uh, it gave me, so did the West Wing. You know, they were like these fantasies I got to oh, check God, out. Oh, God, are you kidding me? That the were, West uh, Wing? Yeah, yeah, they're, the thing is, the, the difference is that you have to look at the West Wing as fantasy, not as a reality that we don't actually live in, but you kind of act like we do, which is what most Democrats and centrists kind of behave <laughs> right now. They they behave as though the West Wing is real, not as though it's some fantasy to aspire to, essentially, uh, like uh, the next generation. Only, yeah, yeah, only we shouldn't necessarily aspire to everything in there, but even, like, just some of, like, the political realities and stuff, uh, you know... <laughs> the ones that are different from our world today, because a lot of the West Wing is just justifying a lot of our reality today. But a lot of it is, is also this ridiculous idealism that is just not practical as it exists right now. But, you know, I was into it before I understood that. <laughs> yeah, okay. But I did understand that it wasn't, uh, that it was still fantasy, you know? <laughs> it's also, though, it's not the same. I mean, with the, the science no, no, no. fiction aspect is, I think, because it's like another world... And it's got different rules of actual emotional and, you know, uh, social behavior. But so does the West Wing. The West Wing uh, yeah, puts, I, a higher, puts a higher premium on things like, uh, you know, intelligence and making a good argument and, uh, you know, having some, like, character nobility and, like, uh, <laughs> you know, who you are, who you... Like uh, how you behave, all these things that don't really matter in politics, let alone in like the upper echelons of society and life and whatnot. You know, that's that's kind of a suspension of disbelief too. the notion that those things are the forces at play and not like, you know, just greed and who has the influence and, you know, the existing power structures that maintain those forces and whatnot, you know? Yeah. But, but I, yes, yes. To, to back to your point, though, because I do uh, want to talk about this. And I don't want to get into why the West Wing sucks, you know, <laughs> right now. <laughs> like, that's a different conversation. But because uh, I was just thinking about this the other day, actually, that uh, I feel like, you know, you need to be able to visualize any given idea you know you need to be able to kind of bear it out in your head and visualize how it would happen how what it would look like and whatnot uh to to help you achieve it or to you know it's kind of a prerequisite to achieving it is to understand what it is that you're shooting for and like I've said, you know, as a theme that like there's many, many things wrong with our society today, so creating a fictional world where you can just say. Here is X amount of those problems solved through various manners. You know, some of them maybe will explain how they were solved in this fictional world. And some of them, they just are. And now I want you to accept that this is a world without X, Y, and Z. Or with X, Y, and Z. And we'll move on from there. You know, like, uh, taking away these, like, hard sorts of, uh, 
presuppositions that people have. That's what I think science fiction can be really useful and instructive for. Um, yeah, I think I think that there's a value in it. I just um, I just wonder sometimes. Uh, yeah, I just wonder if there's if I mean if it works, or if it just helps people who already think that way to justify their beliefs. You know, because that's because yeah, to me, if, if you want I, the thing that I'm asking you, I guess essentially is mm-hmm. because we live in an age that's so defined. I think by the fact that we're all immersed in this kind of narcissism uh, that's uh, where we're encouraged and, and even kind of conditioned into a narcissism that uh, leads us to constantly try to reaffirm our own biases. Um, it just seems like when the culture is constructed on that bedrock, it's really difficult to see the... the a way out of, of, of like, you know, hegemony of the things that just like reestablish or reaffirm the, the sort of core beliefs of, uh, capitalist realism. I wonder if, um, well, uh, no, I think that they challenge it. I just wonder if yeah, it's, I think if the it's, next if generation the, the challenges that, it wonderfully. I would love for you to, uh, look into some more of it so we can have, uh, more detailed discussion of it. I honestly think it's one, like I'm not like I'm not into a ton of uh you know a wide variety of sci-fi, but I think it's one of the better pieces of utopian fiction that I've heard of the next generation, you know. Oh, I guess uh, so. Certainly well, in like of, a guess... show or something like that of of uh, a a movie or show format. Well, I I sometimes feel like the it's the way that you what the point I guess I'm trying to to crawl towards here is that it's not so much the content of the of the thing of the story, not so much the content of the art that you're looking at, but the way that you approach the art, you know, the what you're expecting out of it and your relationship to art in general is often more determining of uh, what you take away from it than the actual content, because um, I think that if you were to look at just like the news for one day, if you spent, you know, as much time in a week or something as you did like watching movies or television shows or reading, uh, anything, uh, fictitious, if you just applied the same, uh, mental framework or, you know, kind of established yourself as an audience in the same way as you do in relation to those things, but applied that to like the news or something, you know, actual like current events, then you'd probably have a different view. And, and that's one of the things that I find interesting is there are artists who do that and whose uh, project is about trying to, to try to get people to have these things that they're capable of experiencing and metabolizing in real life, like walking through a city and filtering out certain information, taking in other bits of information. Uh, like that's what that's what me Banksy's so about in it. It's like showing you the graffiti. It's like bro- opening up that eye you're not looking through, isn't it? Don't get me started about Banksy, because I actually, no, no, I I'm not a fan. That. I'm not a fan of Banksy. Yeah, I, I don't. We've talked about this, I think, but never on the podcast. I think we've talked about it in person. Maybe I've gotten into arguments yeah, yeah. with people. Yeah, about I don't Banksy. dislike him or anything, but uh, this whole notion of him being like the great subversionary, it's visionary. He's gonna like open people's eyes and stuff like that. It's like. No, I mean he makes some good some good arts, 
He but, makes uh, memes, basically. He yeah, makes yeah, memes. he makes some 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 great public memes, but uh, yeah, he spray paints memes onto walls, and like yeah. that's that's basically what he does. And that, I'm not yeah. I'm not demeaning what a meme can be because I think no 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 like no. no. It's of, just that the meme can't be the foundation of some sort of point that you're making that's going to change people's minds and, and hearts. And it whatnot. isn't revolutionary or subversive. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. One of the, even to the degree that some better p- pieces of art are. Right. And, right, and, right. And, yeah, but what I was trying about to some of the science fiction, but what but I'm crawling the, to the let me finish my point. Though. Take. Let, well, let me yeah, finish yeah. my point. Yeah, because like what mm-hmm. I'm saying is that some artists whose projects I respect and I'm interested in are using methods like, I don't know, for example, like a really easy one, a famous one, a well-known one is like William Burroughs and people like that using cut up to kind of reinvigorate the experience of reading with this, uh, you know, cert- certain minimum requirement of critical faculty that is not beyond even the average person. It's just that it's normally not something the average person does when they're reading. You know, that's sort of like part of his project is like he would argue that walking down a city street was like it was quite similar to experiencing cut up and that there's a lot of stimuli. There's just all these different nodes of stimulation just Mm -hmm. really vying for your attention and and coming at you. You know, really, like a, a, that, that could be arresting if you didn't already have this faculty uh, present to, to filter out what you, you know, didn't yeah. want to know. And, and having the it's experience actually of actually challenging. Yeah, yeah. And moving from one gradation of, of like visual and auditory experience to another. I think that that's, that's something getting people to try to use a different approach to like, uh, I don't know, text or movies or whatever. Like that to me is probably more interesting than the content. You know, and so it's something I'm interested in. I'm always interested in like what other people think about that because it's not, I mean, that's still like very much relegated to the, the little niches of the avant-garde and stuff, that way of doing things. (laughs) Exactly. So reading in general, what are you talking about? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. Like a, like a tweet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Cause what you're describing is sounds like way more than 200 characters. (laughs) Um, but Speaking of speaking of tweets, <laughs> but but uh, hold on, just before we leave this topic, because okay. like uh, there's one other aspect of it I would like to talk about in that um, it's still about how the person perceives it. No matter how much you want to make, let's say the content, or even like the way that you like the the Burroughs cut up that you're talking about, the way you interact with it, some people might just take it and be like, "Oh, this person's dumb." <laughs> and everyone who's <laughs> yeah. told me to read them is uh yeah, yeah. you know dumb maybe full of themselves thinks they're better than me or something like right, that you yeah, know yeah. it's like you can never know uh and like so star trek like uh people are i mean they're they're wrong about these opinions but some people look at it as a fascist show in a in like a positive sort of right wing sense like really? uh, some people look at it as like a right wing ideal um is but the they're they're absolutely wrong about like every aspect they make yeah they're, they're like this is a military utopia actually and they're actually all behaving nicely because of like perfect sort of uh deterrence and whatnot you know it's like they literally like make reference to how like deterrence are not good and like how they're they they what they have is not a military it's not a corporation it's not for profit like you know like all these things are disproven so there's a group called on facebook called something like uh 
Sounds like you never watched Star Trek, but okay. <laughs> it's one of those tag groups, you know, on Facebook yeah, yeah, yeah. that are just for like tagging in the comments of something. So yeah, you yeah, get yeah, like yeah, mega yeah, reference. Yeah. But uh, the mods, like, they actually, I'm a member of it. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not just a viewer, I'm a member. Uh, <laughs> they, uh, they don't like kick people out who uh, aren't like, you know, breaking the rules and, like, saying anything mean, per se, they allow conversations to happen. And so the group itself is basically just right-wing people trying to post really bad memes about how Star Trek is right-wing. But, like, you know, like, already you know something's wrong if right-wing people are trying to be funny or post memes. But, like, (laughs) they're also trying to make this point that they're wrong about. They're in a group where, like, the theme of the group is, like, you must be misunderstanding this if you think this way about it. (laughs) And yet they're still willing to make the point and stand by it. They, like, truly believe, like, how do you people think this way and stuff so it's very interesting how people can see the same bit of data bit of information and take two completely sort of different reactions mm. from it and that is that is what makes it a work that's, of art you know my, that's what that's makes also it. my uh kind of feeds back into the point i was trying to make about yeah if the culture uh that we are steeped in you know is just like kind of fundamentally narcissistic then one of the things that's going to happen is regardless of the content of the cultural products, people are going to see into it what they've already brought. Yeah. And that's one of the things that's that's one of the things that's a challenge. And I guess, uh, you know, anyway, I, I want to move on to yep. another topic. I mean, uh, because this is another thing that it 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 leads in very nicely from what we've just been talking about. But all the stuff that's happening <laughs> now with, with <laughs> finger with, painting. <laughs> <laughs> Why is I mean with with Trump now, it's mm-hmm. uh, it's crazy because I guess it looks like there's a a split in the Republican Party between those who take seriously the threats from big corporate donors that they're gonna you know actually stop donating to people who push this idea that the uh, the, the election was rigged and that there's a steal happening to stop the steal people. There's all these corporate donors threatening to remove their funding from these like senators and Congress people. But, and then there's the ones who don't believe it and who were kind of staunchly backing, uh, the big D, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, it's crazy to me. Cause I mean, we even got Mitch McConnell now kind of, I don't know. Is he being coy? What do you think? Is he being coy or is he serious? Oh, absolutely. Like, that's what he's good at. Is like I coy. said, none of this is remotely genuine. You know, even the people uh, who, you know, you're saying are like be- pulling back their support and whatnot. None of it is remotely genuine on the right. Like on the left, not left, but like on the center, you're, you know, like MSNBCs and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe some of their you know, kind of uh, open mouth agape sort of shock at, at, like, what's going on because they're just idiots, you know, like, and they now feel like drawing some arbitrary line that for some reason wasn't drawn a month ago, for some reason wasn't drawn a year or three years ago. I get it. Like, I'll accept that sort of idiocy. But none of these right-wing ghouls am I buying this for one moment. They're all just seeing an opportunity. There are two things happening. One is they're seeing an opportunity to get out and switch away from that uh, 
you know, divisive team while this transition is happening and they're going to have to face that reality. But the big thing that's happening amongst these corporations and stuff is just the fear that Trump has crossed a legal line, that he's crossed a legal threshold, that especially now that he's not going to be president actively anymore, he's likely going to be in a better position to face consequences for. I don't believe it, but they're worried about that, as they should be. They're being safer than sorry. And so Twitter and all these social media and anyone who is can be directly associated with supporting him, like everyone wants to, in some way, shape, or form, uh, make it official that they're washing their hands of what he's doing uh, because they're worried that he's crossed this line and they're worried that someone something is actually going to reach yeah. some sort of lawsuit I'm, and then they will be rightfully culpable of having yeah. participated in whatever well, we this know, crime is. We know not to trust the people in uh, these corporations, the donors themselves, but I'm curious to know what you think about the party and the party apparatchiks because I don't see... I mean, they it gets talked about as like, a split or a civil war within the Republican Party. But I don't think that that's true. I think, like, building on what we said last week about the kayfabe, right? You know what I mean? It's like yeah. they, they they basically, they, uh, they drafted into the party all of these particular brands of lunatic, um, and they used them for their own purposes, never actually really ever believing, you know, or, or yeah. any of the rhetoric not really they were never really in accord with these people i don't think i think they're way too pragmatic for that and so now they're just probably figuring out a way to offload them without doing and like damage to their own like electoral and donor base you know so uh but what do you think do you think i'm right <laughs> you think that's basically, what's happening basically <clears throat> basically i don't think they're trying to offload them um well they're trying to contain them maybe yeah they're trying to transition away from them being in charge, at least like the figureheads, you know. Um, well, here's the thing, though, and transition back to how it was kind of like under Obama, where right. they're there to cause the rabble, and if they need someone to go, yeah. you know, have like a very well covered 400 person protest, right. <laughs> like yeah, they yeah. can do the that. Astroturfing, yeah, yeah. But yeah, like, yeah here's yeah. the thing. Here's the the. But the, like, the, for still, me, like the the leadership will be absolutely devoid of necessarily pursuing the things that will actually help them yeah. uh, materially because it's the same things that would help you or I. Right. Um, but here's the thing, though, because, I mean, you can see we've got a little bit of... It's been happening since 2016, probably before. I mean, it's been happening since well before, really. This rise of um, what they wrongly call populism. I don't think that's the right word at all. Oh, man, I po- hate that. Yeah, because populism is not a negative thing historically. Um, but anyway, the, they just got grafted. The word got used. I mean, the actual yeah. populists in the in the American Populist Party were were good. I mean, they were, they were a good force. And they led largely to the election of uh, Roosevelt, who was probably the most left-wing president that there's ever been. But anyway... Either way, the notion is conflating the idea of populism with the general notion of telling people what they want to hear. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because uh, both the Tea Party wants to hear this nonsense and yeah. other human beings want to hear policies that will actually help right. them. So in that way, those two things are populism, right. I guess. That's it. But the thing that's crazy to me is that I, I feel like now that we've got a little bit of data to work with, right, we've got a little bit of evidence from the last like five or six years of politics, if not more, 
And I know that in the UK, I wrote about this actually quite a while ago. I wrote like a little blog post or whatever, but I think no one reads, you know. <laughs> um, I was interested in the way that Theresa May at the time adopted the the kind of like rhetorical devices and the framing of parties like UKIP and politicians like Nigel Farage and even other people on like the far right of her own party, the conservative party. And how, for me, the question of the dangers of UKIP were really, people were misunderstanding. And I think that this, my opinion was kind of proved right now in retrospect. The danger that UKIP was going to become some sort of like active political force in parliamentary politics, in like the electoral makeup of parliament, was sort of missing the point because they dragged the conversation so far right that the mainstream parties were adopting their framing. They were adopting like the, the, the criteria for debate, both of the labor under Ed Miliband and the conservatives under both David Cameron and under Theresa May. They both became more, uh, you know, they accepted these criteria, the, the, the framing of the debate. And that just has created a situation now where, I mean, I don't want to have to enumerate all of the different things that that has led to, but I feel like mm-hmm. the asylum seekers uh, trying to arrive in boats and being held in the jungle at Calais, um, the the way that we've cracked down on immigration, the, and like we've talked about before, you and me, I told you about like the hostile environment and everything. I mean, all of these things I feel were like sops to this imagined electorate who was, you know, racist bigoted, xenophobic, wanted closed borders, you know, what they call the white working class and everything. I mean, no doubt there are some people who are like that, but a lot of the people, I I mean, a lot of the the framing of this discussion could have been, they could have held out the fort of having like a reasonable conversation. But obviously the way that politics operates is they're not interested in doing that. They're not interested in building anything. It's not, politics isn't constructive the way that it exists now. All it is is a responsive way of doing PR and, uh, you know, administrating for on the, on behalf of like the capital, the capitalist class. You know, it's just they're administrating capital. That's what the state does now. They're just uh, caretakers of the economy, you know. So it's like I, I, I'm wondering to what extent that's uh, that's going to affect what happens within the Republican Party now. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm, I'm wondering like what you think about the idea that um, they've already done it. I mean, the Republicans are like this absolute fucking just like flaming fucking hell mouth, you know, like they're they're so far right that it's it's unbelievable that it's gotten this far and that the only thing that we've got to kind of hold it back is the Democrats. But I'm, I'm just wondering, like, do you think that the Republicans will do this uh, sort of continue to on this like being the party of the working class attempt that they've been talking about or do you think that they're going to uh try to become more of like an opposition now you know like uh um i think they're going to do both because that's what i think they really would like to do that's what they wanted to do in the beginning i think um it's just that the tea party kind of got out of control uh when they gave it a stage and fox news accepted it and whatnot um, but I think the big, 
you know, they want to be the centrist party. <laughs> you know, like in America, it seems that we have this sort of centrist business neoliberal monolith of 70, 80% of our government, regardless of where they from, much higher than that, actually. Um, and so they have been, the Republicans have been painted too long, in their opinion, as these radicals <laughs> and associated with uh, the Tea Party or with even with the neoconservatives and whatnot. And many of them are like, we just want to be <laughs> this sort of uh, neoliberal business party that you've accepted the Democrats as. You yeah, know? the safe pair of um, hands that you put uh, the, the keys to capital into. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even though, obviously, they fully seem to support all of these right-wing thing, uh, behaviors and whatnot. But, yeah, they brought them on initially. You know, it was just this racist reaction to Barack Obama. It was all it was this movement of racist people who were reacting to Barack Obama there and they couldn't use the N word. So they used words like socialist, you know, they couldn't use the N word. So they said that he wasn't born here, but they all they, they all wanted to just use the N word like people would go and do this thing of like, um, interviewing them like at their rallies and whatnot being like what's the problem here it's like well you know he's a socialist blah blah blah, blah, blah. it's like you could tell that they're all just wanted to be like i mean haven't you seen that there's an n-word in the oval office you know like there's like an interview where someone's like uh i'm not gonna vote for someone named hussein obama okay it's just like that's all she said that was her explanation yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. listen to these words i'm saying the thing you know? is though so the only the, challenge the, but I the, the, the this, problem though. was that there was a lot of energy there and yeah. they were at that time very bereft of energy because they had rightfully gotten you know enthusiasm for them all but destroyed by the eight years of the bush administration who wouldn't you know there comes a point where only diehard people are really going to support you when you've just destroyed everything and fucked up so clearly for so long however and so they looked at this just like they did in 2016 as an opportunity to pump some enthusiasm and energy into their overall movement that is significant severely lacking and instead what happened is that they were so lacking in any sort of ideological or organizational structure around the sort of conservative neoliberal business pro-business uh ideas that they were pushing from the from the people at least not from the donor class that that ended up filling a much bigger void than they anticipated to the point that in a matter of two years, they were getting challenged and getting primaried right, getting from primary. the right by these people. So it's basically know? that the void that they were filling was bigger than the void that they thought that they had to fill. Exactly. And that's on them. And so it kind of got out of control. And then in 2016, that had, that had taken their already decrepit party, ripped it apart, and also, all they had accomplished in those four years was making it very clear that they were obstructing the function of government. So if you hated Barack Obama yeah, yeah. and you didn't want him to achieve anything, then the Republicans were helpful to you. If you wanted absolutely anything else from your government, you probably weren't very impressed with the Republicans. And so they were, in 2016, rightfully heading for another inevitable massive electoral failure 
when they again got saved by this enthusiasm that was coming from a completely different place. And here it was coming from, in addition to all those other forces, now there was this powerful anti-establishment force. Right, and he's and the And now the Donald Trump weaponized that anti-establishment force in a completely dishonest way, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. He's the harbinger so, of that void you're talking about. He's yeah, the harbinger yeah. of the void. Yeah, and so now that conflict is also coming back to you know they they gain the benefits of using that energy to to win them their victories in 2016 and now that is having a fundamental conflict with the realities of both what they plan to do for those people and those people's interests uh and what they want and now that conflict is happening again and so the way i see them moving forward is an attempt to again push them into being what they are which is just a smallish part of their coalition that is there to uh boost in energy and increase the rabble again not to go back to sports all the time but it's like a sixth man on a basketball team it's like this thing this ideal that everyone goes for that they never seem to get is you want a really good scorer to be on your bench so that when you want to sub substitute someone in, you can substitute in this really good score and they'll put up a whole bunch of points to make up for the fact that your starters are out. It's just that if you have a really good starter, they don't want to be on the bench. They want to start, you know? So it's yeah. this impossible dream that the teams chase to have a really high scoring guy on their bench. And that's what the Republicans want. They want this high energy and this, this passion from the, the, the tea party, but they want them to stay on the bench and they're playing the game and trying to get them involved. And, you know, they've, they found it difficult, but that's what they plan to do moving forward. I'm sure they want to distance themselves from Trump, but not essentially like turn on the Matt Getzes of the world. Like people, Democrats are calling for these people to be kicked out of Congress and persecuted for their support of these uh, protesters. Like they're not going to support that even if they support like impeaching the president, you know, because they don't actually want to fully turn on them. They want to do it just enough that certain people, even the Mitch McConnell's of the world are to some degree accepted back in to that sort of neoliberal normality uh, that everyone is craving a return to, you know, and, and put those people back on the bench. And I think we should move on for this or let you talk, but like, I think it's like one day we should talk about how the experiences that the Republican party has had with the tea party in many ways informs how the center, the, the, the democratic establishment deals with the left of the democratic party because they don't, they they clearly don't want to utilize the left right, yeah. for the purposes right. that the, the Republicans have been utilizing the right. And they certainly fear the left becoming a significant influencer, An influential force voice within the party. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so for that reason, they're not even willing to use them as energy off the bench. Right. You know, yeah. so one of the things that I wanted to talk about this week was uh, something that's happening in the UK, and it just requires a little bit of background. I think that maybe you don't you don't have a lot of that background, so I'll probably have to share it with you here before we can even make sense of what's happening. But one of the things that's been in the news this week here has been this big argument about uh, um, free school meals. Okay, that's this is the crux of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was looking at this article like. 
You'll have to explain it to me because it seems pretty ridiculous from what I've read. It is. It's it's outrageous. So basically, there was this program. There still is largely. It's it's been it's been stripped back a bit because everything in this country, much as in the states, when you have this this model of the way that things work, where uh, politics is effectively just a bunch of people doing admin for the capital class, uh, you have. Uh, the idea that anything that doesn't serve the market is basically devalued and has no real use. And so functionally, it gets uh, eliminated one way or another. And the prime way that they do that is just like completely underfunding it until it collapses and then saying, see, it didn't really work because everything in this, the kind of neoliberal model uh, deserve, you know, gets what it deserves. That's like the underlying principle, I feel like, including people but also uh, organizations, institutions, programs, all these things, they get what they deserve. That's the operating model of neoliberalism, isn't it? So free school meals are this thing where if you have, uh, if, if you have uh, parents who uh, are in receipt of certain benefits, their children are entitled to receive free meals when they're at school. And uh, obviously anything like that is something that the Tories would like to get rid of. And one of the ways that they that they begin to get rid of it, as everyone knows who's ever seen privatization take hold, is they start by just, uh, you know, outsourcing the actual function of it, the the administration of it, the operation of mm-hmm. it gets outsourced to a private company. And back when David Cameron was the prime minister, it was one of his, uh, like, campaign advisors had a company. I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly. Here, let me let me look it up real quick and I can I can edit to make it make more sense. Um, Kulag Eats. Kulag, yeah, Kulag, Kulag Food Incorporated. Um, yeah. <laughs> so basically, when the, the Tories came to power, they they outsourced free school meals to uh, this company called Chartwells, and uh, who were owned by like a, a multinational corporation called the Compass Group. Who uh, the chairman at the time was this guy Paul Walsh, who was David Cameron's. Uh, one of his business advisors, right? They, they started this business advisory group and uh, he was one of the big advisors. And they they do everything from uh, like running the meals, not just the free school meals, but just all of like the lunches and stuff. And they first came into kind of, uh, I, I'm going to say prominence, but I mean notoriety really. Uh, when, uh, do you know Jamie Oliver, the stupid, he's annoying that, you know, the cook Jamie Oliver, right? He did this whole thing about mm-hmm. like the shit that kids eat at school and how disgusting it is. And he made a big yeah. thing of these things called Turkey Twizzlers and how bad they were, you know, they're basically just like lips and assholes, <laughs> like, like pressure sprayed off of the carcass of a turkey and, uh, they feed the shit to kids (laughs) use a knife yeah yeah Yeah. it's more fun with a spray yeah Yeah. (laughs) so it's the same people who were like uh at the center of this big uh furore here are the same ones who were the ones making the turkey twizzlers and all that so Mm -hmm. um so before covid even hit there was already a problem in this country with children school-age children um, suffering from malnutrition and not getting enough to eat and food insecurity being a, like a widespread thing. Because throughout the UK, obviously, it's like the fifth uh, richest economy in the world. And despite the fact that that's the case, there's still like, you know, one in seven families in this country are, are like food insecure, right? There's huge amounts of poverty. When I lived in Cornwall um, a few years ago, like five, six years ago, I remember hearing in the run-up to the Brexit debate, 
uh, the run up to the, the referendum and the debate around like whether we should leave and everything. There were uh, arguments that were made from the Remain side about Cornwall, particularly saying that it was the 17th poorest place in all of Europe. And it really relied very heavily on EU funding. And there were kids. Uh, Cornwall is this place in, in the UK you probably don't know. It's like the kind of Florida of <laughs> of, of the UK. <laughs> I mean, it's like really fucking, it's really poor. They have like a lot of problems. And it's also got extremely rich parts of it. And it's where all the rich people go on holiday. They own second homes there all along the coast. It's a big peninsula in the southwest of the oh. island that is, uh, the, the you know, the UK. And all along the coast, it's all extremely beautiful big houses, loads of those houses are owned by rich people who live in London and other metropolitan cities in the UK. But as soon as you go away from the coast, you go inland, it's all places that have been literally in like an economic depression since the 19th century when they closed the tin mines. You know what I mean? It's just like, there's just nothing there. You can drive through it and you see like crumbling smokestacks from tin mines that have literally been lying fallow since the the 1850s, you know? It's fucking crazy. And there's children. I had friends who worked in education in Cornwall who would tell me that there were children who were coming back to school after summer holidays with malnutrition um, because they hadn't really eaten because the only time they ever really ate was when they got their free school meals because they're so poor. So this is this is the reality on the ground before covid hit. You already had all these kids living in poverty yeah. and having like uh, like like a lack of nourishment, not getting enough to eat. And then when COVID hit and they uh, had to stop people going to schools and stuff, and the, although some kids still did go to school, um, by and large, a lot of people were missing out on their free school meals. So there was this vote in October uh, over whether to extend the free school meal program to kids who uh, yeah, who weren't actually going to school, like to give these kids uh, vouchers in October? Like, they voted on in this? October. Yeah, I know. Can you believe that they waited that long? It took that long. Um, That's longer than America took. I know. It's 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 insane. Um, it's really insane. Yeah. I mean, I guess because it was like the the end of the school year. Yeah, I, I don't really know. I don't really know why it took that long. But anyway, to make a and long so they voted to send people thirty pounds. No, what they did was they um, they started a program in the height of the pandemic. I think probably in like April or May, where they they were giving them vouchers uh, okay. that they could use in supermarkets. They were giving parents who whose kids would otherwise be receiving free school meals vouchers, and then they wanted to extend it in October and loads of Tory MPs voted against it and it created this backlash. Mm-hmm. It was like such an unpopular move that there's this um, famous English footballer called Marcus Rashford and he went on Twitter and started this campaign where he was like shaming Tories and because he's like a big famous footballer, uh, he he was garnering loads of attention, loads of people. He started a petition, like a fucking million and a half people signed it and he shamed all these people into into doing something more. So they started this campaign called uh end child food poverty and basically in he he listed on his website here this thing this end child food poverty where they say um in june 2020 the government pledged to support children on free school meals over the summer holidays with food vouchers and then in september 2020 marcus rashford formed his uh child food poverty task force which is like a coalition of charities and and food businesses which uh, you know already i mean it's great i i admire him for trying but it's 
It's also like, <laughs> doesn't in, it doesn't include any sort of imminent critique, but of course not, right? And then in October, <laughs> he launched a parliamentary petition to end child poverty, uh, child food poverty, and that was when it was signed by like over a million people. But the thing is, is that they haven't, they haven't like, they haven't expanded the the free school meals to all kids under sixteen, where a parent or guardian is in receipt of uh of like the of universal uh, credit or equivalent benefit. So I don't know if you know this, but last year was when they switched all of the old benefits that they had. Like if you had to go on welfare to get like unemployment or something like that, they've moved everything into this one thing called universal credit. And it's mm. obviously the people who are doing universal credit are like a private company, you know, and they, and they, they make you go through this giant ringer of questions and interviews and they have to establish whether you're fit for work or if you're even fit to be like training for work. And if you don't like take steps to be looking for work regularly, I've told you this before where you have to spend like 30 hours a week on this website and stuff. Mm -hmm. If you're deemed fit to be looking for work or to be like doing training for before you're looking for work, uh, you can be sanctioned and they can knock you off. But even in the best case scenario, you're entitled to all of the benefits that you, that there are for you to get, you know, you can get enough money that it's actually like almost equivalent to working like a job like mine where you're making whatever like you know a, a grand a month or a little more and you can live and you can pay your rent and you can feed your kids and all that even then it takes five weeks for the payments to start so you apply it takes fucking ages for them to even decide whether you get it or not and then from the date that they say that you get it yeah from the from the date that they say yes you can receive universal credit you have to wait five weeks so when i was volunteering at the the food bank in cornwall Every single person that came in, almost, almost every single one, it was like they were either just, they weren't, you know, they weren't getting uh, benefits yet. They were in the process of trying to apply for them. And they were like, you know, they had no money. They were literally, they had no money. They were going to starve if they didn't get this money. Or they already were uh, like in receipt of universal credit, but there'd been like a delay to their payment or they were like, you know, they'd only just been in receipt of it. So they have to wait five weeks to get the first payment. And then there'd be like, or maybe there'd be a complication. So it would be delayed. It would be like six or seven weeks. So they'd be waiting like a month and a half to get like a thousand pounds to be able to buy food and pay their rent and stuff. Lots of people became homeless because of this. So this is like the situation on the ground. And so what they've done now is they've, they've created, um, they tried to move away from giving people money, giving people vouchers that they could use in the supermarket. And so they asked this company, from the the Compass Group, uh, what are they called? Charter, uh, Chartwells. Yeah, they've they've asked them to do this thing where they they liaise with schools, find out from the schools, oh, who are the kids that need this, and then they give the schools these like pre-packed, like uh, packed parcels of food that are supposed to be the equivalent of thirty pounds of food. So it's supposed to be for like ten days, thirty pounds of groceries for ten days. And I don't know if I, I mean I sent you the links, right? You saw the the photos. Of what yeah, they considered, it was like three bananas, two potatoes, half a <laughs> loaf of bread, a packet of pasta, beans, and a tomato. It's unfucking and like some chocolate. I guess the tomato is to make sauce for the pasta. I, <laughs> <laughs> or is it? Or do you guys have beans and pasta? Or I, no, I mean, not me, but you know, I have you know, no get, idea. Now play a beans and pasta, <laughs> pasta. <laughs> Yeah, and the the thing that I sent you was like a like a 
like an unrolled, uh, whatever rolled up. I don't know what that's called. You know, on Twitter when they like take a million tweets and put them into mm-hmm. just like one like document, whatever. So there's this, there's this, uh, yeah. Jack, Jack Monroe is this, uh, she's like a, an author who wrote about being poor and about having to like find ways to, to feed herself on like, like 20 P a day or something like that. And so obviously She's, you know, she's a lefty. She's trying to make the argument that people shouldn't have to do this and how ridiculous Mm -hmm. it is that the expectation is for people on benefits to be living like, you know, this ridiculous hand to mouth existence. And so uh, she but but what ended up happening when she published this book, unfortunately, is that it was jumped on by the right and not the left as being like, see, look, you can you can live on 20 P a day. You know, poor people are complaining too much. If they just got rid of their iPhones and their their widescreen TVs, they should, you know. They just like pull up themselves up by their bootstraps and just fucking, you know, eat like and people do it all the time on Twitter and on Instagram, always going like and it's these people always use the word spuds to describe potatoes. They're just always there's like every single one of them is like, you know, just a few spuds. What's wrong with a few spuds, tin of beans and some spuds, you know, and you're like and I just find it disgusting, though, because she's she's making this point about she she was sharing um, a lot of photos that people were sending her of, like you said, I mean, some of the photos are unbelievable. Like, it's just clearly a bad faith conversation because it's clearly people making the argument, implementing the system, defending the system that are clearly not subject to it. Otherwise, they wouldn't make this argument. Of course, you of know? course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, and so they don't even understand it. But right. yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it's very troubling. And also there's this, I mean, obviously... Everything you're saying is, like, echoed here. It's just that we don't actually have as detailed of a program to deal with it that could be criticized the way yours is. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I'm sure there's people who would go on endlessly about how unjust the school school lunch system we have here in the places where we still have it uh, are. But one, one thing, one kind of trend that's come up a lot with these notions of uh, helping people during the pandemic and just something that comes up generally when you're talking about uh, ideas of government programs that are can help people, social programs, Medicare for all and whatnot, is this incredible bad faith that pe- argument that people jump to immediately where they're suddenly incredibly concerned with the notion of people receiving these benefits that don't deserve it. That uh, that don't need it. That is rich. Yeah, that's people. always the one. It's like all of a sudden they hate the notion of helping rich people, you know, and they want to means test everything, which obviously, you know, is where this sort of uh, mentality that permeates a lot of centrist comes from, uh, and it's just uh, absolutely disgusting, and it's what leads to a lot of these things where there's all this scrutiny. From one end, the pressure about reducing things and making sure that we're not wasting from the <laughs> from the notion of giving it to the wrong people or something like that, and allowing these sorts of tragedies to take place in the imp- implementation and distribution because we don't give the same kind of energy and care towards the actual people who do need it and what their reality of receiving it is. Yeah, and this is this is one of the things that I wanted to lead on to was um like you were just saying about this idea of means testing and this, this like weird meanness that, that seems to pervade the center left 
I just, I, it boggles my mind. I mean, I shouldn't be, I don't want to call them the center left. I mean, Bernie is the center yes. left. They're the, they're the fucking, they're like the, I the know, right, basically. It's such a difficult, to, they yeah. ruined our ability to even speak. I know. <laughs> exactly. So the thing that's driving me nuts now here is um, just, uh, I don't know, the arguments now that are happening. So uh, I just really quickly want to give a, a quick view of like what these people are saying now as well. Right. So the, the, mm -hmm. the, so Chartwells and the government and all these people that I think in the FT, they interviewed someone from Chartwells or from the compass group. And they said, we acknowledge that when schools were closed, it caused some local issues as we switched from meals to parcels. We've been listening to parents and working out how we can best use our resources to do more to help. And then it says, Compass and Chartwells have been awarded school catering contracts worth at least £346 million over the past four years, according to data firm uh, Tussle. It's not the first time that Compass has come under fire over the quality of food it provides in schools. Like I said before, yeah, it's turkey Twizzlers became the emblem of celebrity chef Jamie Oliver's campaign for better school meals 15 years ago because of their questionable nutritional value, right? But now all of this stuff that's happening is happening because... I mean, I don't know how anyone could think differently, really. I mean, it's it's happening, I mean, for many other reasons as well. But for one thing that you can certainly ascertain from this is that the people who put these programs into place, they don't care about these kids. They don't care that these kids are hungry. I mean, they literally mm -hmm. know that these kids are hungry and they don't have enough to eat. And I'm sure that they're seeing maybe for the first time photographs of like this one that's the the really you know the one that's gone viral the most where it's like a tin of beans and two bananas and whatever <laughs> like they they must know but i mean these the fact that the country is run by people who don't really give a shit about kids or that they're eating this garbage the the thing that makes me upset and that makes me angry and the reason that I don't have anything funny to say this week is because all I've been thinking about is that at the same time that this is happening, Annalise Dodds, who's the, the shadow chancellor, yeah, so the Labor Party under uh, Starmer, Dick Stormer, and uh, Annalise Dodds gave a speech about uh, what, what Labor's economic policy is going to be going forward now. So um, she gave a, a lecture called the Maïs Lecture. Uh, or Mace Lecture, I don't know how to pronounce it, because I'm I'm just a stupid pro. Uh, and basically, the the Financial Times reported that that she's uh, cloaking Labour's strategy to become the UK's next government in the latest thinking from international organizations such as the IMF, which recommends waiting until unemployment falls and the recovery is complete before thinking about the sustainability of public finances. So basically, they're going to take an anti-austerity approach, despite the fact that the Tories have completely abandoned austerity rhetoric and are not even claiming to do austerity like that's not even their plan they're like admitting that they're going to spend and labor is like relitigating the arguments of 2014 you know 2015 they've just gone back to the they, they want to behave as though it's 2015 and ed miliband is the leader again i mean i just i i can't believe the the, the language that they use she, she said, uh, we need a more resilient economy that can only be achieved through responsible economic, fiscal and monetary policy. I don't understand, but you're saying they're saying you're saying they're making austerity an argument when it doesn't have to be. Yes. Yes. They're they're arguing. They're trying to litigate so that they're basically in a way helping the idea of austerity. No, no. What they're doing is they're criticizing the Tories for 
austerity. But I mean, austerity is no longer on the table. So I mean, as soon as they make the argument that, that the Tories are the party of austerity, the Tories can just mm-hmm. rightly turn around and say, well, we've done all of this spending and we're going to continue mm-hmm. to do more spending and we're not going to be trying to cut anything. We're not going to like try to. Yeah. I, that isn't what's going to happen. That isn't their 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 protocol now. That isn't their plan, mm-hmm. their strategy for re- like recovering the economy after covid. God, I wish our liberals were fucking as liberal as your conservatives. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? I know. I know. I know. It's pretty sick, But that it? being said, Joe Biden has graced us with his acknowledgement that they're going to do deficit spending. It's like, oh, thank you, sir, that, <laughs> that you're not going to choose this time for austerity here. Uh, yeah, I don't know where they get it from. Well, no, I mean, it's just, uh, it's the argument. It's the notion that... Uh, Somehow not doing whatever it may be, the school lunch or, you know, whatever uh, stimulus or whatever it is, that that is somehow going to be the thing right, that yeah. clears us of a, you know, whatever $10 trillion debt or deficit or whatever, you know, like that right now at this time of crisis, not addressing the crisis is the thing that is going to be the tightening of the belt that we needed to make the whole outfit work. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and not just, you know, uh, one further step in the wrong direction um but yeah it's absolutely absurd um i want to i want to run something by you here um because i run it go and tell that run and tell that i mean i just think that like you can see that they're being vague about what all of their new posturing means in practice Mm -hmm. they haven't made any real like like when, when she gave this speech she didn't really outline what her actual like taxation and spending plans would be. What it, what it effectively means is they're going to, they also criticized, she criticized the Tories for having a wasteful spending. So they're back to that discourse now of like, who's pissing the money up the wall and the fucking money tree. That was like a thing. Like anytime that, uh, that um, the labor party under Corbyn said anything, people would be yeah. like, Oh dude, there's no fucking magic money tree. That's going to make all this money come from somewhere. No, I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, look at uh, Pelosi. Exactly. They, uh, as soon as they gained power, they implemented this policy called PAYGO, which says that we won't do any policy, we won't add any money to the budget unless we re- d- remove that amount of spending. Right, yeah. So yeah. that you don't get to say that we're tax and spend liberals. We will officially, from this point forward, not spend any money that we don't fiscally... Uh, account for savings of an equal amount. And guess what? That made all the conversation about uh, about Democrats being tax and spend liberals go away. Like, no one got called a socialist after that day. <laughs> we got to go home and hold our heads high because we made an intellectually valid argument and Aaron Sorkin smiled and I... Farted. Uh, I, I did a shart. Sh- sh- what, what's the name of that food company? Shart. 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 Shart Wells. Yeah. Shart. Shart Wells. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. Aaron Sorkin smiled, and the rest of us shart well. But like uh, that. Like that's what it, that's what it is. It's like you're shooting yourself in the foot to 
make a completely unnecessary argument that is actually going to cripple your ability to do anything, but, you know, it works out well because you didn't actually have an interest in doing anything anyway, and now you get to say that the reason you're not doing anything is because of how awful the other guys are or something like that, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, let me, let me... I Thankfully, mean... AOC was able to, uh, to uh, start chipping away at Pago. Like she, they, they, she didn't get like they didn't get rid of it, but they were able to secure uh, exemptions for Paygo should they be able to implement certain environmental policies and whatnot. The Green New Deal is essentially going to be exempt from Paygo for now. Yeah, but they should get rid of it. We'll see. You know, like they Biden has an opportunity to to also take advantage of this situation to at least make some sort of. Headway. <laughs> I mean, I'm pessimistic uh, about it because this is the thing. I mean, all, all that this has done for me has made me feel, um, I don't know, man, like basically like all my adult life, I've been called a cynic for not believing this lie that liberal democracy was like some kind of vehicle for the people to express their collective will or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. the actual idea of the, the demos that's embedded and bound up in that. I mean, in 2004, when Kerry ran against Bush, I refused to accept that I was supposed to care. I'd end up in these (laughs) heated arguments with liberal Americans. The only Americans you tended to find abroad in 2004 were liberal Americans. And they'd be shocked, offended even, that I didn't acknowledge the difference between Kerry and Bush. That's so cynical, they'd say. But I think it's the other way around. I I think it's cynical to believe... That in order for people to have power, that they've got to hand it over to someone who's like a single shade of brown different than the shit that came before. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because if you accept that argument that that the the least worst is the best, which in some ways I I did, I guess by vo- like voting. But anyway, you know, then you've admitted. But still, if you accept that argument completely, then you've admitted defeat before you even get in the ring. You've admitted that you can't win. You've thrown in the towel don't get me wrong i mean sometimes it's better to to choose your enemy which is why i did that or to choose the arena you're going to be fighting in even if you know you're going to lose like that's the situation we're in now that's where electoral politics has a purpose though the only place i would argue that it has a purpose but the compound effect of constantly giving away what is effectively a voluntary ass whipping all this meaning all this weight is to contribute to the lie that it is anything other than an ass whipping, a loss, you know, it's a defeat. And the thing mm-hmm. for me is I never realized before Bernie's campaign and Corbyn's campaign that there were two ways of not caring about this bullshit. I mean, a lot of people are just wholly uninterested in politics. I mean, they don't even know what's happening because they don't care at all. They don't think it applies to them. And because they sniff out the fact that nothing they can do will really change anything. They just totally switch off the receptors I was never like that, of course, because I'm one of these brain-diseased people who reads newspapers and follows what's happening, even though I know it's theater. And then in reality, it's like the kayfabe, like we talked about. I'm not on the team who decides what happens next, the, the writing team, and whether you know Hulk Hogan or Andre the Giant wins and how, and whether they hit each other with a chair or whatever. <laughs> so when a candidate came along, like Bernie or like Corbin, who could make a difference, who actually could be the, uh, the, the centrifugal point 
around which a movement could build. I recognized that. I mean, with a, obviously not on my own, with a lot of help from other people who knew even more about it than me, like, like you, for example. But then I realized that there's this distinction between people like me who think it's bullshit, who see liberal democracy as basically the arena of the enemy, this like stadium where they make the gladiators fight. Uh, so there's this way of looking at it like a rigged game, but maybe where you can get, uh, I don't know, like a, a Spartacus figure or whatever, a person who can embody some kind of slave revolt, right? But that's extremely rare, extremely rare. More likely, you'll be the kind of uninterested person who's not even got the receptors on, who would know a chance, a shot at changing things, even if they did get hit over the head with one. And really, who can blame them? If your lights flicker on and off, you're, you're more likely to think there's an electrical problem than, I don't know, that you're in fucking poltergeist. You know what I mean? Like, you'd be right. What's the likelihood there are actual fucking ghosts? Probably as likely as a politician really gives a fuck whether you starve or not, whether your kids get to eat this week or not. So this is my point. Maybe expending all that energy to get people to care, to be interested again in politics, maybe it's a waste of time. Maybe it's better to let, uh, like we were talking about, let the junkie bottom out and hit rock bottom. I mean, I think maybe like Burroughs was right. We're a sick society in the junkie sense of the word. We're sick. I mean, in the 12-step programs, right, and all that, they say that you have to hit rock bottom before you can start recovery. It's a precondition of recovery. And I know, um, you know, like you said, if you've known anyone like this, you know that most people don't survive rock bottom. I mean, maybe we won't either. But the alternative seems to me to keep using, which is also killing us, but more slowly. So when, like, Dick Stormer or Brain Dead Joe, Joe Biden, get their hands on the steering wheel... I mean, forgive me, but I can't help but think, what fucking difference does it make? And even worse. You still have to navigate it, though. Like, but, I, uh, but, even, but to get these people in, they have to accept the conditions of capital's domination over labor as a fundamental, like, first condition in order to even play the game. And at that stage, like, what are they for? Like, what is Keir Starmer for? Why not have a ghoul in office? How are they not ghouls now? And pushing the distinction between them and some slightly worse has the unintended effect of legitimizing this fucking merry-go-round that produces tiny oscillations in the gradients of shit, you know? The minute differences yeah. between one ruling class party and another. And it distracts people from the bigger, scarier, more important fact that they're all your enemies. And they literally no, are know. destroying the planet we live on because they think they can leave it before it goes down the toilet. And I mean that. They're not your political opponents, but your actual enemies. So I don't know. I'm, 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 but I'm in, I'm in two minds about it. You know, I don't, I don't really know like what the right thing to do is I don't really know I mean this is like such a bigger conversation but like uh you know just to bring it back to the drug thing again if you've got a terrible heroin problem and you go to get treated like they're not going to just stop giving you heroin <laughs> you know cuz your body will literally just die yeah. <laughs> they have to somehow wean you off of it to, to get you to a place where you can even stop taking it again so what you're and, saying is Keir Starmer is methadone <laughs> no bernie sanders is methadone <laughs> Yeah, Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer is fucking crocodile. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? He's that fent. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fentanyl. Yeah, it's, it's more drugs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and again, and th that is a good thing because Bernie Sanders is more drugs too. You know, like trying to reform this system from the inside is also more drugs. It's more of the problem. But 
like I keep saying, like, our problems are many-fold. Like, it, it almost feels like even just one revolution is not going to handle them all, you know? Like, uh, well, historically, uh, it always takes, like, two, two goes, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, like, you know, we have so many problems with not only capitalism, but also, like, the other aspects of our sort of uh, society that are related to that. But, like, uh, you know, just general kind of... Influences of patriarchy, our imperialism, racism, you know, like all these things, like they can all come from this generalized idea of people not caring about each other and and like power and whatnot. Like you, you can say that, but it will take many sorts of solutions and being able to significantly affect the political arena, like... Because the goal is to affect government. It's not to affect politics. It's just that we use politics as the, the vehicle for, for, go, for governing. Um, it would have been an advancement on a lot of those fronts. Something that it's difficult to strategically uh, be, able to, be able to come up with anything else that's going to be that sort of advancement. You know, like like I keep saying, like, we need to fundamentally get individuals to see each other as united. Uh, and we have to do that around things like labor and around things that we have these shared interests against this entire group of people that's trying to fight against it. Uh, yeah, all those things are obviously very important, but it would have been a huge aid towards that work if we were able to do something like have an electoral victory on the scale of Bernie, if we were able yeah. to do something like have one of the uh, leaders of these systems, you know, even if it's like one of the weaker positions, like be yeah. someone who's got so many of the right ideas so that they can steer conversations to so many of the right directions. Uh, but as an organizing tool, as an organizing strategy to help, like, uh, to get people to see that yeah. organization is necessary and possible, don't you think, like, what we were talking about at the beginning, about, like, the point I was trying to make earlier about, like, getting people not just to have, not just to get them to watch the right show or read the right book or whatever, but to get to bring a different way of looking at these things might be necessary. And I think that this is one of the things that I find interesting about um, people who were like sci-fi or sci-fi adjacent in like the 70s and 80s and stuff like William Burroughs. He had this whole idea. Uh, I mean, it wasn't his, it wasn't an original idea, but he frequently used the concept of like the planet as Earth as like a spaceship. And I think that that's like helpful because like the people who were basically, uh, you know, steering the spaceship are steering it off a cliff. And so we have to kind of figure out a way to get their fucking hands off the steering wheel and, and, you know, take over. We got to start driving it because they, they literally will kill the planet because they think that they're going to get off it before it blows. Now, I know. I know. But like, how do we do that? Well, I like, think that what are the actual the methods in those terms by which help. we do that and know that like people are already falling off the damn ship. Like right, yeah. this, these school lunches you're talking about, this is happening right now. And it is people in government that will make the decision yeah. to stop it, keep it the same, or make it worse. And, like, if you don't address those people, you're not going to solve these problems. Like, like these problems right now, the, like, you're not going to address only, them. I don't like disagree you. May, with you. Th like, like, these may be 
reacting to symptoms of a larger problem but if you don't treat symptoms the patient dies like you know like or or at the very least the patient suffers you know and so we can talk another day about whether or not it's possible to come to any sort of equitable society first of all ever but also through uh these sorts of methods of representative government that we have here but like we there's a lot going on right now yeah and we need to face these challenges they're unlikely that we can even meet these challenges and it's going to be these governments that do it like we need to we need to force them that now our ability to do any of those that influencing our ability to is all going to hinge on our ability to have power in the face of us not having institutional and political power, which again comes back to organizing. Um, I still think that you are prioritizing politics too much. <laughs> like, despite, like, I think that you in this argument are prioritizing politics too much. Like, you need to ignore it. Like, uh, stop having this conversation. There's no election happening right now. Like, just do the organizing. Like, uh, that's what we're doing. And like that organizing, it has to be directed at the elected officials that are there right now, you know, and who they are is going to affect how easy that job is. But either way, it's about you making the push, you know, and it's something that we're going to always probably have to do. I hope that we can move to a (laughs) utopian ideal one day, anarchism or something like that, but probably we're going to forever be tweaking and correcting this process, and if we ever solve all of our problems, then we'll have to tweak and correct the backlash to that when all, like, the people who who create new problems because of the lack of the existent ones, like, we we, got to inch out new solutions here. Let the healing begin. Whatever they may be, none of us have had the right idea so far, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and we're not going to individually have it, but we need somebody to be the Malcolm X, somebody to be the Martin Luther King, somebody to be the Carmichael, somebody to be all sorts of characters, you know, somebody to be the Black Panthers, somebody to be... The fucking weather underground. Parody, parody, parody. Uh, (laughs) Satire. Satire, parody. Edit, edit, edit. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, we have lost one of the most important leaders we had in this country. I'm sure you guys don't care over there. But here, we lost Sheldon Edelson. Uh... Financier extraordinaire, who has been the money, along with the Koch brothers, behind so many of the awful politicians and policies that we've had over the last 10, 20, 30 years. I'm going to miss him. Yes. And so this is a message for you, Sheldon. Go home. We love you. You're beautiful. To that great Kulag in the sky. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that our listeners will forgive us for not being funny. Well, that was funny, actually. But The, the Kulak thing, Margaret Freeman. <laughs> we got to try different people as well. We got to do like different. Uh, I gotta, maybe I should do one. You should write me a little script to say like a Kulak commercial and I could do like uh, maybe I could do like Polly Walnuts or something. <laughs> Polly Walnuts. <laughs> hey, Don, I'm here to tell you about the Kulak Corporation. <laughs> hey. 
You want to know how to turn one tomato into some gravy for a whole for a whole plastic bag of pre-cooked pasta, pre-cooked ziti? Secret is you got to stir the gravy. You take that one tomato and you stir it, okay? <laughs> for 30 pounds, all you can give me is half a piece of bread in a small packet with a little individual shfuyadel in it. <laughs> Hey. Supposed to feed my whole family with one fun size for you now. I got one for <laughs> I got one fucking piece of macaroni. I got two ounces of gravy. What the fuck <laughs> am I supposed to do with this? What the fuck am I? Some kind of fucking rat? <laughs> You're feeding these kids two sheets of gabagoo? <laughs> <laughs> First, they gotta sleep with it. You gotta wrap yourself in the gabagoo. You go to sleep, you wake up, you eat it. You eat it off yourself. A one-inch square, a one-inch dried piece of muzadel. <laughs> Moots. Moots. <laughs> <laughs> also, I love that uh, the uh, the offending beans in these pictures. Yeah. Uh, beans is spelled with a Z over there. Yeah. What's that about? A Z. A Z, Z beans. <laughs> Yeah, it's Heinz Beans, B-E-A-N-Z. Beans. <laughs> Z. On them beans tip. Is that just how they spell beans over there? I, I honestly, uh, yeah, I guess so. I guess they're Heinz Beans. Oh, I see, I see, because of yeah. Heinz, because of Teresa And then Heinz the game. other thing that you're looking at in this picture, so there's Heinz Beans, and then there's like mini Soreens, mm-hmm. which are like these little kind of fruitcake things. And then um, those are frubes, I think. Are they frubes? Yeah, frubes are like these Fuck little sachets frubes. of yogurt. And then three slices of cheese, two carrots, three apples. And to I, think I they could be sending these to wealthy people. <laughs> <laughs> but like it is Benefit remarkable cheese. how quickly that phrase jumps off of people's tongues around here. Yeah. As soon as we talk about it, all of a sudden they care about this. It's like you people passed... A multi-trillion dollar tax credit. That's not even a can of beans. That's a straight up money for the rich. <laughs> At least give them a can of beans. I have instead. concerns that uh, that individuals who already have many tins of beans in their cupboard <laughs> are going to be receiving 12 more tins of beans. How many beans are these people reasonably expected to be Phil? able to eat on one piece or one loaf of sliced bread? <laughs> is that uh, just a Southern Southern politician or is that Dr. Phil? I, I mean, I'll, I'll leave that up to you. <laughs> well, it kind of sounded like Dr. Phil. Well, Dr. Phil. You say- know, the problem is people don't look at beans. You know, my grandma used to say, you, you got to have a bean in your hand if you want a bean in the in, on your plate, you know? <laughs> I was thinking of him the uh, earlier because you were saying, uh, talking about how they, like, force you to, like, go on the website and stuff. And he always says, like, look, look, don't tell me you ain't got a job. You got a job. If you ain't got a job, your job is to get a job. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Look here, Snoop Doggy Dog. You need to get yourself a jobby job. <laughs> Listen to me, Snoop Doggy Dog. You go get yourself a jobby job. Uh, 